something outside. What is that? Radio. I am your host here, Shane Corson, and of course, Monstrex Radio is brought to you by Sasquatch Coffee. Have you tried it yeti? And you can find and, and purchase an order of Sasquatch Coffee at squatchcoffee.com. Now, today our guest uh, is a man of many talents. Uh, I got a huge amount of respect for our guest today, and our guest today is Mark Marcel. Mark Marcel is a good friend of mine. Um, someone that, that I have a lot of respect for uh, that is uh, kind of behind the scenes on a lot of, a lot of the, uh, well, for the Bigfoot world in general. And uh, he's not actively seeking out Sasquatch or Bigfoot, but he looks at a lot of the historical accounts. Um, and and he, he dabbles in a lot of stuff. Like I say, he's a man of many talents. I mean, Mark Marcel, he's a land surveyor, a uh, public aquarist, and obviously a historical investigator of long-standing episodes of The Unexplained. A unique individual, uh, someone that's doing the subject uh, a, lot, a good cause. I mean, he's bringing to light not just the tales, but what actually transpired, what happened. Uh, and he's, uh, he's, just, he's just an amazing guy. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and bring Mark on the show. <laughs> Wait a minute. Is there a live audience there? Uh, yes, of course. Just for you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> welcome, Mark. Welcome to the Thanks. show. I'm glad to have you, my friend. Oh, man, I'm blessing sucks, Shane. God, what an introduction. You're very, very kind. <laughs> you're very nice to have me on. So, oh. anyway, um, yeah. yeah, you're right. You know, I feel, I, I really feel that um, these historical accounts um, – like kind of like we've talked about this before, but when I started to get into re-researching the Ape Canyon story, I feel like it was just on the threshold of being canned into the circular trash bin of tall tale and legend and and that kind of thing. And um, I think in the retelling of a lot of historical accounts, any kind of cryptid account or any kind of anything unusual, lights in the sky or whatnot. Oftentimes in the retelling, it turns into campfire stories and everyone's, you know, it ends up with this pall of, of a public attitude of like, well, that may have happened, that may, that may not have happened, and that's an interesting story, isn't it? And then it's just, there, there it sits dead. But if it's the right kind of story that has documentation behind it, I, I'm, I'm always amazed when I find the right story that there, is, there can be a lot of documentation and those kind of stories really deserve a hard second look, a hard 
batch of research to get back into it because oftentimes there's a, there's a lot more going on that that we didn't know about before when we have a chance to take a look at it again. So I think it's important work, humbly speaking. Uh, you're, you're far too humble. Uh, I uh, I like to refer to you <laughs> as the modern day Indiana Jones when it comes to this stuff, and I say that. Oh, yeah. same, same. <laughs> I say that because I've I've actually gone out with you. Uh, you know, we went out to um, to the the side of Ape Canyon, and uh-huh. I got to stand uh, where where the the cabin used to be. But just the whole trip out there, uh, having been an outsider, kind of looking in on your world, I thought. This guy's not only, you know, in the library, online, talking to people. This guy's out, out and looking. So, I mean, it's it's a twofold sort of search so and, and multifaceted. And that, I was just kind of in awe, sitting back, watching you do uh, something you love to do, your passion, something you're very good at. Uh, oh, thanks. But yeah. You, yeah. Um, Mark, but, but for for the for the for Monster X Radio, we have a, our, our viewership has grown and grown and grown uh, exponentially. For for those that may not know who Mark Marcel is, and shame on you if you don't, uh, can, <laughs> can you just tell uh, the, the the audience a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in this sort of subject? Yeah, for sure. I I, I was born. I'd like to give you my year. I was born in '66, and so I'm 51 now, and you know. Our, uh, that that generation, you know, and well, just to briefly touch on Ape Canyon, just briefly, it's like when I got into the Ape Canyon story, and oh, hey, Mark, you know, what are you doing these days? And I would talk to people about Ape Canyon, even though, even even folks who had grown up in the Pacific Northwest, I, I was always uh, going to explaining the explaining the story to them. It's like, oh yeah, you remember this, you you remember that story, don't you? And I was quite shocked that there are quite a few people, yes, younger than me, say 35 or maybe 40 years old and younger, who didn't know about this story. Because, and I, the reason why I'm sh- I, was, I was kind of surprised is because I kind of came of age, I was born on the coast in Oregon, I was born in Newport, and um, I came of age, you know, when we all get old, we all becoming aware of our outside world when I was like seven, eight years old and whatnot, and that was happening at a time in in American pop culture when there was this big resurgence of, you know, unexplained phenomenon. There were all these uh, docudramas and B-movies and television shows. That's when, you know, you know the Sasqu- uh, Bigfoot, The Legend of Sasquatch came out as a movie. We had shows like In Search Of and even... even um, even dramatizations like Kolshak the Night Stalker, right, on ABC, which I watched religiously. If I missed Kolshak when I was a kid, it was like missing a Peanuts holiday special. You know, it was like devastating <laughs> if I missed a show. And so I, since growing, I realize now growing up at that time and coming of age, frankly, it had a pretty big effect on me. I, it, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that you know, TV and pop culture had an effect on me, but it did. And so perhaps that's what sparked it. And all, ever since then, I, since I was a kid, I would just read voraciously all these, any, anything and everything having to do with uh, supernatural phenomenon or natural phenomenon that remained, you know, unexplained, the Nazca lines, lights in the sky, monsters in the woods, that, you know, that kind of thing. And so part 
part of the reason why you and I are talking over the phone and why you and I go out in the woods looking for, you know, old weird cabins, kind of like the Blair Witch Project, is that um, I grew up with my dad running the family business. My dad was a land surveyor. And so I grew up with the family business of, you know, cutting brush and carrying steaks for 50 cents an hour when I was a kid. And it really was a luxury because I was raised as a land surveyor. And and I, I eventually got licensed in Oregon and Washington and I'm running the family business now. But really, I feel it's that combination of my land surveying background and also my incredible interest in 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 the unknown and things that are worthy of research, the unexplained or whatever you want to call it, sasquatchery. Um, because land surveying by its nature, when you ask me to find where your property corners are, there is a tr- in every in any given job there's a tremendous amount of research that goes into figuring out where your property corners are that all starts with document and historical research of deed research and survey research, any kind of documents in the vault that may help me out in the cause of surveying your property. So, you know, surveyors tend to uh, be very historically minded because of that. They have a great interest in, in, in history, land history, almost any kind of history. So then what happened was that um, that got me really heavily involved in this world some years ago. My friend Brad says it was about 10 years ago. I remember more like six or seven years ago. Um, I was uh, perusing uh, the lower Dewey Decimal System of the public library in Vancouver, and uh, that's where all the, you know, all the Sasquatch books are and all the pyramid books and all that, you know, Atlantis books. And I came across a book by um, our pal Nick Redfern called Three Men Seeking Monsters. And I always bring, I always bring, I always go back to that book because it was kind of an event for me. It's a, it's a great, it's a great story. And um, you know, I'm not plugging Nick's book, but maybe I am. But it's a great buddy film. A buddy, I always think of it as, as a movie. But it's a great buddy story of three guys in a van going out of Devonshire to head down southwest towards Cornwall to research a, an old story, over a hundred year old story down in Cornwall of sightings of, of this creature they called the man monkey. And it was basically a Cornish short version of, of Sasquatch, where it was reported maybe six or seven feet tall. And it was it, it's a great read. Later on in the book, Nick talks about this idea that I frankly had never considered before, and it kind of floored me, where if you are a researcher into any kind of strange subject, um, where there's you know UFOs or, or, or Sasquatch or whatever, Nick came up with this idea, may, maybe not independently, but he brought it out in his book that if you look around the general timeline and if you look around the general geographic area, more often than not, you're going to find other seemingly uh, disconnected events of high strangeness, as Fort used to say. That, seem, that are going on at the same time in the same area, but are not necessarily related to anything that you're researching. So that idea really grabbed me. It was like, wow, that's really strange. And so I purposefully picked two stories out of my files, one which was extremely well-known, Ape Canyon, the 1924 Ape Canyon incident, 
and another one which is not known at all, um, which I really haven't figured out yet. But it was it was an event down in uh, western uh, Yamhill County in Oregon near Sheridan where uh, there was repeated sightings and, and frankly, encounters with at night with this uh, strange, dark, shadowy, hominid-type figure up in the forest. So I started taking those two subjects and, like Nick says, looking around the general area and the general timeline to see what else was going on. I was doing, I was looking at these two projects at the same time, and and because of the you know, trying to track down witnesses from the Yamhill County incident, uh, combined with this mountain of information that came out about Ape Canyon, the Yamhill County project kind of is still on the back burner <laughs> because I <laughs> because I was just so dang busy going through the Ape Canyon project, and just just as an aside. Um, the, the Ape Canyon project panned out as far as Nick's idea because yes, there were two, well, one in particular, one very strange incident going on at the same time nearby in 1924. Uh, an- another one was a, a pretty devastating forest fire that was happening at the same time uh, during the 1924 incident nearby, which is you know a natural phenomenon. But I think it's I think it's interesting. It's an interesting factor into the 1924 Ape Canyon incident. So anyway, after a little while, I started finding some pretty incredible stuff out in the field uh, regarding uh, Ape Canyon. And I think I may have put up a couple of things. I didn't know anybody. This was just me going through the vaults and going through newspaper files and going through mining records and anything I could find. So I didn't know anybody in the Sasquatch world, but I put out a couple of things on, on a couple of blogs, I believe, and um, all of a sudden my phone started ringing off the hook, and I had, there was one incident in particular. I was sitting, actually, I'm sitting right here at the desk in the office right now here in Westport, and the phone rings, and um, uh, my son, Santiago, picks up the phone, and he brings it into the office and says, it's for you, and uh, it was uh, Cliff Bergman who called me because he had heard that I had found some stuff about Ape Canyon, and uh, Cliff and I are really good friends, but I'm, I was embarrassed to say I didn't know who Cliff Berrickman was when he, <laughs> when he called me, just some guy, and he just wanted to know about Ape Canyon, and he told me he was working for Finding Bigfoot on Animal Planet, and so we got to know each other, and we've been we've been hanging out since. So that's that's kind of the short version of where I came from and and how I how I'm here. Uh, one thing I got to say is that. Since then, I've been asked to speak at some conferences, and I've gotten, you know, I've gotten to be friends with you and Gunner on Monster X, and and I am. I was talking to a friend about this today. I, I am shocked when I go to conferences. You know, some Sasquatch conferences are like a day. Some of them are like a weekend, where there's a, a campfire and social. You know, you can socialize with different people. I am shocked at the diversity of people involved in in Bigfoot research and I'm also and so many talented people and I'm shocked at the amount of big brains that I have frankly met out there. I mean, you know, I've met primatologists, I've met, you know, microbiologists, 
you know, hair sample experts like Cindy Dosen, anthropologists like Dr. Meldrum. There are a lot of smart people that are, you know, a lot bigger brain, smarter than I am, who are very, very dedicated to the subject and the research that's going on. So anyway, it's, it's, it's a family, and I feel very humbled to be invited into it. I've made, made a lot of good friends, and we've had good times. That's a great point, Mark. You know, a lot of times, uh, well, first of all, it, uh, let me just say this. It, I, I could not imagine being in this subject matter and, and doing what I do without knowing someone like you, without knowing you personally, because you're phenomenal. <laughs> you, don't, you really don't give yourself enough credit. But no, having said either. that, well, it's, tr- it's the truth, I, and, and that's why I'm, I'm privileged to have you on the show, because what, what you do is, to me, it's amazing, and, and you're by far a bigger brain than I but I will say this, that there are a lot of talented uh, individuals involved with the research of this subject from all different backgrounds, from all different sciences, academia, uh, uh-huh. walks of life, uh, and that's not noted enough. And I'm glad you brought that to the table because it's not just at, uh, it's not just at these conferences um, that you meet these individuals. You know, uh, I've been contacted before. You know, you had Cliff Berkman, of, of, who's also a good friend of mine and, and uh, of Finding Bigfoot. Uh, a huge brain um, and very intellectual and smart and just a nice guy. And uh, yeah. and it's through the subject yeah. matter. Through the no subject doubt. matter, I've got to meet people such as yourself. So, no, great point. I just wanted to elaborate on that a little bit because I think that's uh, there's a lot of truth to to what you just said there. So I appreciate and, that. And, you know, you know, with people like Cliff, you know, it, it's, so, it's so funny when you, when you uh, bring up the subject of the television show, which, you know, and you know, in the Bigfoot community, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Internet chatter about, you know, the, the veracity and the validity uh, of the show and what they're trying to do and whatnot. And, but there is that aspect of, yes, it is a television show, and yes, it is for entertainment. And these people that you see as the TV show hosts, you know, like Renee and Bobo and, and Cliff, you know, you, you just see that, that half-hour, one-hour episode. But you're right about Cliff Bergman is that if you get to know him at least a little bit, holy smokes, yeah, the guy, the guy <laughs> is incredibly intelligent and knows a lot about a lot of different subjects, and he has a passion for the sciences and a passion for education, right? But one reason in particular, he, he really wanted to go up to Ape Canyon with me, which, you know, which he did. He went up with me and Craig Flippy and, and our friend Brad Angus, and we had, a, we had a good time. But one reason specifically why I wanted to get Cliff up there is because um, despite the fact that the man makes his living out there looking for Sasquatch and evidence of Sasquatch. He's one of the most skeptical men I've ever met, you know. And he'll he won't I mean, he'll take something he'll take something at face value, but he'll file it in the back of his brain and really cook on it and look for, you know, some verification of some piece of evidence for himself. And so I wanted him to go up there um for that talent so that, you know, he and I had met before two or three times for long, talked for a long, long time, and I laid out the whole Ape Canyon evidence and everything, and then I was able to take him up there and say, well, remember, this is, this is, this is what the story says. This is what the document says, and this is what I found in the field. Let's go and take, check this out and take a look at it together so that I could get someone else's eyes on it besides just mine, you know. Um, I still say that I am 99.5% sure 
that I have found the site of the 1924 attack. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm not going to make any money off of this, you know, and I'm not, I don't want, I'm not going to be holding out any secrets, and that's why I like to share the information as I find it, uh, just to, just to get the word out, just to allow people who may be interested in it to look at the evidence themselves, to look into the document record themselves, um, because document records, historical research. It, almost all of it is public record, and anybody can go and look up, you know, these documents themselves in the different, you know, repositories of where the information is. So if someone's really interested, and maybe they're interested in another story, that they can go out and look for it themselves. You know, it's it's the thing that's a shocking thing about Ape Canyon and Thompson and the Thompson Flat Monster, which I'm just basically in the infancy part of that project, is that there has been this story. It's been kind of digested into those, into that retelling style, in, in Sasquatch books or you know in books like Weird Washington. It's been digested down into a paragraph or maybe three or four or five pages in a book, but um, it's still just a digest of the story. And the real story that's so shocking is that you know this information has been sitting there in the file in different you know broken up into different parts into the mining record or birth or death records or you know different different kinds of records but it's just been sitting there for 90 years 100 years 110 years whatever the project is it's just been sitting there waiting for us just waiting for us to come along and find it and put all the puzzle pieces together and that's the exciting part indiana jones is yeah you're right yeah it it is it's that quest it's that it's that, you know, trying to find that one thing out in the middle of the woods or trying to find that one piece of paper in the vault, in the county courthouse, you know, somewhere tucked away in, in some county, just waiting for us to come and pick it up. And it's, it's gold. It's, it's so yeah. exciting when you can find that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great really, Yeah, it's really looking for the, you know, uh, the, the holy, the, you know, quest the holy grail in, in the pieces of evidence to substantiate some of these claims and, and, and make a, a tale into, you know, is, there, is this just a, a, a tall tale or is there some truth to it? And uh, with, yeah. the, uh, with the Ape Canyon, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I want to make this, uh, you're such a fascinating guy to talk to and a wealth of knowledge, Mark. I, I'm trying to, I would look, and this is going to be easy to do. I want to make this into a two-part episode because uh, I'd like to touch upon Ape Canyon more this episode and then some of your, your um the work you're doing now on um, sure. though I know Ape Canyon is never closed, but you're venturing into other areas and you're going to be talking about some of this stuff at the international Bigfoot conference in Kennewick, Washington hosted by Russell That's Accord. Right. And yeah. also you're, you're going to be in Montana for the big sky conference, which right on. Wow. So yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's a busy, it's a busy September and I'm, I'm trying to fit in uh, one, one Ape Canyon trip this year in August or September, because you know when you when you have a project like this, um, it, it's it's you know I anytime I go out, I want to be working. I want to be working on you know some part of the project. And Ape Canyon basically only has for the field work basically only has one more facet. Um, well, maybe not. I mean, there might be a couple of other things, but basically one more facet. Uh, to wrap up the field work uh, for for Ape Canyon, and that's the site survey. And uh, because um, for Ape Canyon, well, 
maybe maybe we should get into the details of Ape Canyon here in a second. But in Ape Canyon, there were uh, about three or four features, physical features, um, that uh, the miners uh, used. I should say uh, they they built a ladder down about a 30-foot drop in order to be able to access the uh, the cabin site. There's the cabin itself. There's the mine. There's the spring where uh, one of the very first face-to-face encounters with, as they called them, mountain devils took place. There are these site features that have been identified now over the past two or three years, and all of that really needs to be put. I'm a surveyor, so everything goes in map form, right? And so all of that really needs to be surveyed in so that a, uh, a, a good, decent map can be, can be produced uh, to go along with the rest of the story. So that's what I'm hoping to do here um, this, uh, this coming summer, sometime, I hope so. But, yeah, I, I, do have, I do have the two conferences that I've been very, very kindly invited to. So, yeah, I have the IBC in Kennewick and then Big Sky a couple of weeks after that in Montana. Right, and, and of course, you have an aquarium to run. Uh, in, and I've got to run in, the aquarium. <laughs> Yeah, three kids, uh, I, survey business. <laughs> come on, get your act together and get back out yeah, there. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Such <laughs> a slacker. I know. slacker. But you said something earlier. You said you know you're 99.5 percent um, uh, sure that this is the, you know the cabin site in, in in Ape Canyon up at Mount St. Helens. I'm 99.9 percent sure. Uh, <laughs> And and I have no place saying that because you've done the the legwork and the work on it. But having been to the site and having you show me specific things that I have looked at over the years, uh, specific um, um, features uh, of this area, I, when I was down there, I was blown away. Um, and I've talked about this before. I was just blown away and going, wow, th- this is really it. And once I got to really fathom where I was standing and I got to venture around and look around and, and in fact find certain things that uh, I couldn't believe were there. Um, I, I was, well, I'm almost a hundred percent sure, but uh, you know, there's always that little percentage, but you know, Mark, I'd like to get into the details a little bit more. And, and I hope you don't mind because I know you've talked about this at length, but it is really uh, important. It's fascinating. I think the, the viewers would love to hear more about um, how, how the Ape Canyon search came to be and your findings. Yeah. Um, the, uh, uh, I, when, b- before I, before I get in, before I get into it, just, just one little preface is that, um, I still feel like it's a dream, Shane. I know, I know how you were feeling and I still feel it when <laughs> you are pretty sure that you are there. All the evidence is, is pointing to it and, you know, finding stuff in the ground frankly, as you know, out in the middle of nowhere, (laughs) no, but also the document evidence was there of people had visited the site right after the attack in 1924 and left us information, and all the evidence was was coming together, and yeah, it still is like, it still is like I'm in a dream, I can't believe the, you know, sheer dumb luck of actually being able to find the cabin site, but anyway, anyway, what, what had happened and why there is this pretty dramatic box canyon on the east side of Mount St. Helens called Ape Canyon is because of this incident on July the 10th in 1924. Um, This is on the east side of uh, Mount St. Helens 
um, because it's, I'm going to say shockingly very close to the crater. And the reason why it's surprising to me is that, that there still is evidence in the ground, even though it's very, very close to a volcano that blew up a few years ago, right? You know, so before that, oh, no, and by the way, this is way up near the timberline of the mountain. Um, and the reason why it's called Ape Canyon, before, before that it had a couple of uh, unofficial names. One was uh, Jump Off Canyon. Another one was Thousand Foot Canyon, even though it's not a thousand feet deep. Um, it had a couple of loose names. And starting around um, 1918, um, there was a fellow by the name of Marion Smith. And he was the son of a, a Kelso area uh, a pioneer uh, just north of Kelso in the Lexington neighborhood. If, by the, by the way, if you ever are going I-5 north and you'll see the exit for uh, the Lexington Street Bridge, there's a Chevron station right there. And I, I'm, I understand a little bit that the Smith family, the descendants of the Smith family, still run that Chevron station today. That's, that's where Marion Smith grew up. And he grew up in the age of big timber. By the time 1924 came around, he was not a spring chicken at all. He was into his 60s, right? And so he grew up in the Kelso lumber community, you know, hauling these monstrously big trees out of the, out of the mountains. And so he um, knew a lot about the mountains, and he had seen and shot and, you know, fished, everything that there was to do in the mountains just he and his dog and his rifle. And uh, he knew that up on the mountain there was gold. Not a lot, but there was gold. Uh, St. Helens does produce um, gold, and even there was a, a large placer mine uh, in what is almost now downtown Vancouver, Washington, from gold being, you know, being carried off the mountain by the streams. So in 1918, he started going up there and looking for uh, placer, lo placer locations to, uh, to make his own claim. And he worked his way up the Lewis River east of Woodland, and he was working with family members and friends. He had a couple of uh, close friends, John Peterson, and um, he brought his, uh, his son-in-law, uh, Fred Beck. And when he got older, he, uh, he brought his son, Leroy Perry Smith, up there. And in 1922, um, they decided that they had found a, um, a place for a gold mine, and it was a load claim. It was a hard rock mining, digging back into, uh, into the mountain um, at this canyon, Thousand Foot Canyon or Jump Off Canyon. When they started working, in the, and they filed a claim, they filed a mining location notice in Skamania County where the, where the mine is situated, and they um, they started working this mine in 22, and what they were doing, instead of coming in from Woodland and heading north, by that point they realized it was easier to go through Castle Rock to Sparrow Lake, which was the last place where you could park your park the truck, and uh, then hike in to to the canyon. The canyon at the head of the canyon, there's a large butte called Pumice Butte. And it's about, oh, about six miles or so from Spirit Lake, maybe seven miles. I only did that hike once uh, from Spirit Lake. And um, when, they, when they were starting the mining, they were just tent camping. Uh, they were bringing in supplies in the tent and setting it up at the base on the west side towards the mountain of Pumice Butte. 
and going up and over Pumice Butte and down to the mine site. And it wasn't too terribly long after that in 22 that they started hearing and experiencing some strange phenomenon up there, way up on the ridge lines at night. They could hear a high-pitched whistling from one of the ridges, and then there would be an answering whistling, high-pitched whistling call from the other ridge, and whatever was up above them was talking back and forth to each other. Uh, Marion Smith also talked about hearing a strange, low, very low decibel bass thumping kind of strange sound, um, and it was so low and so bass-like, like a subwoofer maybe, that he couldn't exactly tell where it was coming from. It was just coming from around the area somewhere. Uh, they ended up finding um, a singular large human-like footprint. Um, if, if anybody, well, you can almost see this on an aerial photo. On the west side of Pumice Butte up at the mountain, there's a large drainage area. It's mostly covered by boulders after the eruption now. But that, but that drainage area drains southerly and then easterly into the, into the head of Ape Canyon. That's where they were camping, and they were sort of between uh, two rivulets, two streams. There was a large sand island, and it was Leroy's turn to go down and um, wash dishes. And he comes back, and he says, God, come here, come here, come here. And, they, and they go, he goes, and they, he shows them where they're in the middle of this island. There was an extremely large footprint, 17, 18 inches long, with toes, just like a human. And um, they were starting to get a little keyed up. There was something strange, which is which is important to put into the perspective of Marion Smith getting relatively nervous because he had been up on the mountains forever, all of his life, and he wasn't like a you know rough and tough, you know rootin' tootin' tough guy. He was known as a very nice, affable man, uh, but he was starting to get a little concerned that there was something funny going on there. So. Uh, they they mined and 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 worked the mine through 1923. At the end of 1923, reportedly the assays out of the mine were quite good, and uh, they decided that this was a going concern. Because they were tent camping, they they couldn't you can't stay up there year round. These guys had families right. and and they had regular jobs and they had to go back into town. Well, at the end of 23, they decided that. When they returned in the spring of 1924, they were going to build a cabin right next to the mine site. And uh, the, the reason why is because they could, they could leave goods. They could leave mining tools. They could leave maybe dry stores of rice and beans in the cabin and have it secured. They, they knew that the cabin had to be formidable enough to withstand the snows because you're up at the timber line. You're going to get a lot of snow up there. So when they returned in 1924, this would have been around the vicinity of mid-May, maybe late May. That's about the earliest you can get up there, um, and that's what they did. They cut down trees uphill from uh, where they were going to build it. They, um, I believe I remember that they said they had used a little dynamite to blast out a shelf out of the mountain. And they cut down the trees and felled the trees and built the cabin. It was a log cabin about 10 feet by 20 feet or so. Well, just before the 4th of July, <clears throat> they're, they're building their, their cabin in the off time and during the day working the mine. Just before the 4th of July, there's a, there's a spring where they would collect water just about 75, 100 feet north 
of the cabin site. And Marion Smith and Fred Beck um, are going to the spring to collect water. And they see across a, a small draw, the draw is maybe two or 300 feet wide, they see a creature up there. And they described it as seven feet tall or so, covered completely with hair, walking upright uh, like a human. And the creature is, is looking at them, poking out from behind a, a large cedar tree. Well, Fred Beck immediately raises his, uh, his gun and takes three shots at it. And uh, Fred goes off running across the draw after it. And Smith says, you know, don't worry. No, you got it. No need to run. Let's just go over there. Well, they get to the tree, and there are uh, skinned marks along the, si- along the bark on the side of the tree where the bullets went past and struck the creature, right? But they get there, and there's nothing. There's no body. There's no blood. There's no hair. And they look up, up, uphill, continuing up north, and there's that same creature walking away from them, watching them. Well, they go back for the 4th of July. They go back into, into town to join their families. And they start spreading the word a little bit. And I feel that that really kind of confused some people in town because Smith and Beck had the reputation in town of being Sterling Square guys, that whatever they said, you knew it was going to be the truth. If they said they were going to do something, you could count on that it was going to be done. But when they come back with these stories of these mountain devils, um, the public really didn't know exactly how to handle that. So they went back after the 4th of July, and that's when things started kind of going kind of going south on them and kind of snowballing, where Leroy Smith was coming back from the spring. Um, at that time, uh, Leroy was about 18 or 19 years old, and he's getting to the cabin site with the water. This is during the daytime, and there is a noise in the bushes behind him, and he turns around. And there's one of them. There's one of the huge creatures about, not very far. This is a very, very limited area geographically as far as a flat area to walk around. It's pretty limited. So it was only about 50 or 75 feet away. Leroy has his gun because Smith had ordered all of the miners, don't leave the cabin site unarmed. Take something with you. So Leroy raises his gun, and he shoots directly into the creature, and it seemed to have absolutely no effect whatsoever. The creature turns around and goes back into the goes back into the woods. The rest of the guys at the time were in the mine. On Wednesday, on July the ninth, Leroy's coming back from the spring again. This is later on in the day, and again, there's a creature right there, really close to the cabin. Leroy takes one shot into the creature, and then all of a sudden, all the other guys are boiling out of the cabin. And Marion and everyone's shooting at this thing. And Marion Smith um, estimated that there was something like around 15 to 16 rounds that went into this creature. Right, the creature. And this is. And I'm building. I I built this story off of uh, interviews with the miners that were done directly after the after the attack on on the 10th of July, where they were interviewed and laid out the the, the timeline of what had happened. Because later. This next, this next thing had, had a little bit of a point of contention, but when everybody was shooting into this creature on, 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 that, on that night, uh, or during in that afternoon, the creature was on the edge of the bluff that went down into Ape Canyon, and one of the last shots that was taken uh, went into the creature, and the creature either 
kneel down and scramble down into the, into the canyon or it fell over into, into the bottom of the canyon. Well, that night, we're on Thursday, the guys are bedding down and it's summertime and so uh, the sun sets kind of late in the day. It was around 9.30 or 10 o'clock and I understand that they were discussing, you know, is this gold really worth it? Should we be going home? And then all of a sudden on the side of the cabin, it was such a huge impact that it was almost as if a truck was barreling down the mountain, knocking into the side of the cabin, and where they had uh, had split chinking to um, chink up the sides of the cabin uh, between the logs. One of the chinking pieces fell out. It showed up uh, that that showed up in in a photo that was taken by Gregory of uh, of the Oregonian. So you can see the hole that was that was knocked out. And it was maybe about 18, 24 inches long and, and maybe about five or six inches wide. And they look out of this hole, you know, what was that? They look outside of this hole and uh, there's enough moonlight. I checked the lunar record, so it was a full moon at the time. It was bright clear. They see out around the cabin, they see five or six of these creatures, right? Well, all hell breaks loose, and whatever is out there starts attacking the cabin. They start beating on the roof. They're scrambling up on the roof. The guys have to barricade the door because whatever is out there is coming through the door. Um, and they start, you know, they're well-armed miners, and so through the hole in the side of the cabin, they start blasting away. It's a, uh, it's a split-shake roof out of, uh, out of Douglas fir or pine. And so it's pretty thin. They start shooting through the roof any time that this thing is, is up there. They're screaming. They're yelling. They're, they're singing. They're just, please go away. You know, we stop and, and we're all going to leave, okay? So it, there's rocks that are being thrown down uh, onto the cabin. And, oh, yeah, there was one, there was one incident where uh, one time during that night where they knew something was digging under the cabin. It was digging from the outside underneath the wall in order to get to them, right? <laughs> and so this goes on all night long. Finally, the night the uh, the sun comes up, and um, it must have taken all the courage in the world to open up that door. Everything's quiet. They open up the door, and all around the cabin are, are just you know, hundreds of rocks that have been thrown down on top of them, uh, large human footprints everywhere, um, there was a, a stack of leftover um, shakes, shingles for the roof, and uh, whatever had gotten onto the roof was using that as a kind of as a step to get up on the roof. And so those are scattered everywhere. And they look at each other, and it's just like you know, <laughs> grab your tobacco and your revolver and let's get out of here. And they hiked that morning, which was Friday morning. Uh, back to uh, the truck where it was parked at Spirit Lake. And Bill Welch was the uh, head ranger for the Spirit Lake District for the what was then the Columbia National Forest. And Marion Smith is the first one to see him. He actually sees Bill's wife, Wilma Welch, first. And Bill comes up and says, what's going on? And Marion Smith tells Bill, you know, I got one, I got one. Well, what'd you get? Well, I got a mountain devil, a mountain devil, huh? Was it a wolverine? No, no, a mountain devil, because there were, there were wolverines up there. I guess they're coming back now. A cougar? No, no, a mountain devil. And I just wanted to let you know if I ever got one, because I told you I was going to tell you if I, ever, if I ever got one. So Marion Smith goes to the truck, and Bill follows him around. And at the time, 
of the attack, there were five people, Marion Smith and four other miners. And the four other guys had gotten had gone around and gotten into the truck right away. So when Marion rounds around and gets into the driver's seat, uh, Bill looks into the truck, and Bill said at the time, and he said later in an interview about 40 years later, he had never seen four grown men so shaken and scared in his entire life. Something really scared the hell out of him up there. And so what happened is, is word got out. They went down back home. Oh, when they were walking out on the trail, they said, don't say anything to anybody. But they couldn't not talk about it. And so there was a famous um, uh, there was a famous tavern which is gone now. It was torn down many years ago. It's under the uh, Allen Street Bridge in uh, in Kelso, and uh, that was that was Friday night. That was Friday night, and uh, Marion Smith is friends with the bartender, with the owner. Uh, John, actually, our our friend John Pickering gave me gave me this story. He he had a friend who knew the owners of the of the tavern. And Marion Smith spills the beans. Well, Kelso's a small town, and the Longview Daily News at the time heard about it, and they, um, uh, the word got out the very next day in the Saturday evening paper of the Longview Daily News telling the world about how these miners had, were attacked by mountain devils. And it's you know, kind of histrionic, but people have said jokingly that half of the armory and half of the population of the young men of the area were depleted because everyone is going up on the mountain <laughs> in order to bag one of these mountain devils. And it became known as the Great Ape Hunt of 1924. But that's the reason why this project has wheels under it, because it's amazing when you read Fred Beck's book, I Fought the Ape Man of Mount St. Helens, or you read the Ape Canyon story, uh, in in a, in a you know modern retelling, um, it, it's quite shocking that it's because of Great Ape Hunt of 1924 that there's a lot more to the story because it was so incredibly well documented. Many many newspapers traveled up to Kelso in order to interview the miners, and so there's there's an interview with every single miner that was there at the time, and even even other miners who had been at the mine site a year or two prior to the attack. They were interviewed as well. Two or three reporters actually went up to the cabin site and uh, got to see it. They stayed there overnight. Uh, Rangers were interviewed. Um, There's just this whole mountain of information out there. It's just, it's an incredible story. But that's why I got so buried in, into the story because there was so much to research. I mean, there was so much information out there. My my Ape Canyon file right now is about four inches thick. Yeah, um, one of the things I wanted to touch base on. I know that I've been asked this from time to time, and I know, pardon me, excuse me. I know, Mark, that we've discussed this, but a lot of people go, "Well, Mount St. Helens blew up in 1980. Didn't it destroy the whole area? How could you? How could anything be found? Uh, do you mind to uh, explain up. that a little bit?" Um, over the over blog talk radio, I'll try because it always okay. takes maps. But what it <laughs> <Yes>. is, <laughs> but what it is, is that well, one reason, um, 
Well, let, let me let me answer your question first, and then I'll try to get to this other point if I can remember it. Uh, what the way it's set up is that Ape Canyon generally runs um, east-west, and the west end uh, at the head of the canyon is um, about it's a little bit over the mi- a mile from the from the center of the mountain, from the crater now of the mountain. Uh, it's over a mile, but it's just like around two miles. It's it's not it, it's not very far. And at the at the end of that canyon, the on, on the north side, there's a very large butte. Uh, it's Pumice Butte, right? And um, what is on the other side? If you go from Ape Canyon on the south side of the butte, you can travel north up and over that butte to the north side of the butte. There's another large box canyon. Um, that, from what I understand, it's been called Pummy Point. And um, those two canyons are on the, one's on the north side of the Butte and one's on the south side of the Butte. And they, both canyons travel east and eventually come together um, on, on the east side of the Butte and keeps, it keeps on draining further, further to the east. Well, it, it's, it's a strange, it was a strange topographical coincidence that, that um, anything was left. Because what happened when the mountain blew up, it mainly blew up the, the force of the impact when it erupted, went to the north. But of course, you know, it's, it's a hot, steamy volcano blowing ash and everything out. And so all the snow around it melted and started. Well, the first one was pyroclastic flows that were very hot. And then after that, with all the glaciers that, that melted, those glaciers that didn't vaporize, but those that melted, carried mud and rocks uh, barreling down the mountain about 60 miles an hour from what I understand in mud flows. Well, this is barreling down the mountain just before heading, let's say it's heading east towards Ape Canyon. Just before Pumice Butte, there's this flat area. It's the south end of of an area called the Plains of Abraham. And the mud flows came down, hit the Plains of Abraham, and because of because of the inertia, it kept flowing east, but it went up the west side of the butte, scoured the west side of the butte, and then drained back down, drained back down towards the mountain, back into the bottom of the Plains of Abraham, and then drained out. So it drained out into Ape Canyon, it drained out into the Pummy uh, Point Canyon, and it drained south into the Muddy River. What the point is, is that the east side of the butte was very very little and very impacted very very little very very small and one of the fortunate things that we have um is a fellow named Mulano and I can't remember his partner's name but these two fellows are uh, USGS geologists and they produced this this mon- monumental tome if you're into volcanology um or just general basalt geology they the USGS published this collection of papers that these two fellows edited uh, that studied the impacts of the eruption all the way around the mountain. Uh, and this was published in 83 or 84. Um, it's in most area libraries. One of the study areas, fortunately for us, that they looked at was Ape Canyon. Um, it's one of those weird things about how this whole project kind of came together with through strange coincidences. But fortunately, they looked at Ape Canyon. And they described what I just described about how the west side of the butte was was scoured, but the east side was was very little was very little touched by the eruption. So that they pointed out that on the east side of Pumice Butte, 
um, you only had about two inches worth of ash and pumice that was deposited on the ground. Most of the ash and the pumice went up into the sky, and then the wind caught it and, and it sent it somewhere else, right? So the east side of the of the butte was very little impacted, and I realized once I started getting into the documentation of newspaper reports and everything that happened after 1924, I started to realize that that was the most likely location for where the Ape Canyon cabin and the Vendor White mine was, right? There was no map of where the cabin was. There was, you know, all it was was sort of this collection of clues about where it, where it was. And so I figured that it had to be there somewhere on the east side. And fortunately, it was an area that's, that's hardly impacted at all. And so it's amazing. You go down there to the cabin site or anywhere on the east side of, of the butte and you just kind of scratch with your foot and um, there's, you know, there's that hard shell of, of ash that kind of like gets, gets compacted through time and, and through water. And that's maybe like an inch thick or so. But you get through that, just even digging with your hands, and suddenly you're at natural ground uh, underneath right. that ash. Just a couple of inches, it's just dirt. And so that's, that's the geographic coincidence of why the cabin site was, was spared. Yeah, um, and, and uh, I have dug in there a little bit, and then I, I concur with your findings and agree. And to me, it's 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 uh, I can only imagine had the cabin been anywhere else off the east side, what may have been left. Right? You, we would just still be talking about possibly where this cabin is. But it, why yeah, do you believe? Yeah. yeah ahead, but Mark, why do you believe, Mark? Uh, why do you believe for the viewers? Why do you believe that this is? Why do you believe you possibly found the cabin site? I mean, what gives you uh, – I mean, I know the uh -huh. answer. <laughs> I'm very confident yeah. in, in your findings. <laughs> but for, for, but for, for, for those that are just like, well, I mean, how come – maybe this guy just found uh, some old other cabin or, or a, he found a something interesting. Right. A cabin, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or, or found a nail or, or, a or nail. whatever. Right, you know. Yeah, what it is is, um, uh, again, it's documentation. And one of the things that we'll all learn at the International Bigfoot Conference is that I'm using Ape Canyon and another project I'm working on down in Oregon to try to drive home a couple of guidelines that I try to keep for myself in historical document research. And one of them is always track down the original document. Always. If you have a have a story or have um, a piece of paper in front of you, you have to ask yourself, is that the original document or not? Okay. And the point being is that right after 1924, <clears throat> when reporters were going to Kelso and when reporters were going up to the cabin, one of them was a fellow named Jack Gregory, and he was a sports writer for the Oregonian, and his editor said, go get this story, because you know sports at the time was – baseball, football, but it also included like outdoorsmanship, like hunting and fishing and hiking. And so Jack was sent up there. And his article was published um, about his he, – he never interviewed any of the miners. Uh, what, but what he did do in his story, it was published on July 19th and the second part on July 20th in the Oregonian. <clears throat> and he t provided a travel log of – 
of a narrative of what he did, going up to Castle Rock and, and getting the deputy sheriff to go with him and then going up to Spirit Lake and down the trail, and, you know, he described everything. It, that, that article has been transcribed, and I believe it might be on the BFRO website. I, I know it's floating around the Internet, right, Jack Gregory's article. Well, you look at that article, and you look at it and you read Jack's story, is that the original article? No, it's a transcription, right? It's not the original one. You have to find the original document. Here's the reason why. Going, you go to the microfilm, you go to the library and get the Oregonian microfilm or the historical society, and you grab Jack's article. And, yeah, it's the real article. There is an article there, and I have proofed the transcription compared with what was published and yeah, there's a few Scribner errors here and there, but it's basically the, it's a it's a it's a very accurate uh, transcription. But the reason why it was important is because Jack Gregory took a camera with him, and he photographed. Uh, well, he photo. I don't know how many photos he took. The the originals are are gone. I haven't been able to track them down. But it, but four four photos were published. One of them was of the two two sides of the cabin, right? And in, one, in the long side of the cabin, in the foreground of the photo, you can see the stumps of the trees that had just been cut about a month, six weeks prior to the attack of when they built the cabin. And so I consulted um, uh, the head archaeologist at the Gifford Pinchot National Forest, and we had a discussion <clears throat> that that the east side of that butte, I needed to confirm the east side of the butte had never been commercially logged, right? And even though there still are some very large, valuable trees down there, the east side of the butte is just so dang steep. Logistics, the logistics of getting getting those trees out was just, it, it just wasn't possible. And so the fact that it was never commercially logged knew that if I could probably find those stumps or remnants of those stumps, because stumps last a long time in the ground after they've been cut, I knew that if I could find those stumps, I knew I'd probably be close. So <clears throat> in the first trips up there, looking and looking and looking and looking, um, stumps out there at all. Um, but then on the last trip, in July of uh, 2013, we started finding stumps. <coughs> Excuse me, let me take a drink of water. Yeah. And um, once we found the stumps, then we were able to use a metal detector and find the nails in the ground. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we found the broken saw blade, the saw that they broke in order to cut down the trees started finding all this evidence in the ground and that's when I knew we found an old spoon found wire I knew that that we had found the cabin at that point yeah and and having pardon me but having been there myself and 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 witnessing uh some of the findings uh and and being in the location where this cabin was supposed to be or you know where you guys were uh, led based on your your, uh research i was blown away by the location uh and i thought man these miners are they they were crazy Uh, they were nuts nuts. 
nuts. Yeah, I, I mean, just nuts. <laughs> there, if you read Fred Beck's book, he does have a very, um, and that's one thing that I, I, I really have a hard, I really have a hard time with um, a lot of the frankly trash talk that people like to lay on Fred Beck because his book uh, is a two-parter book, and he describes the whole Ape Canyon incident, and then he goes on to wax rather philosophically about, um, uh, how, how do you say this, uh, 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 spiritual evolution, and, and wax philosoph- almost, almost describing how the cosmos works, you know. And so uh, with that, um, Fred Beck has kind of been written off as a bit of a nutcase. And in that, in that book, he describes some uh, strange, uh, almost paranormal things that happened to him that led he and Smith and the other miners to lay claim to the mine where they did, because it is precarious getting down there. Um, it, it's, it's, it's one in one of the most dangerous places I've ever it been. Sucks. <laughs> it, let's, no. I'm going to say it, it sucks. <laughs> it, it, it's really, really amazing. Now, when you, <laughs> When you when you travel to the when you travel to the to the cabin, there's more than one place where you know it's pretty easy to lose your life, right? And we when you and I went there with Gunner and and Shelley and Abigail and everybody, um, we we kind of took the long way around. There was a, there was a point uh, where you're coming down the mountain, coming down that slope, and there's a drop of about 30 feet. And the miners had built a ladder to to make that last drop uh, quote unquote easier for them. But again, if anybody wants to check, I think I think I've put it up on the internet and floating around. If anybody wanted to check out the uh, the uh, ladder site photo from the Oregonian, uh, there's a photo of of the deputy sheriff Dunbar standing on that ladder that the miners had built. And I'm afraid I still would go the long way so what the long way so around that we did because that yeah. ladder didn't look very safe <laughs> to me in the photo. No, and no. it's a good size it, drop, you know. <laughs> the only difference between the long way and the short way is uh, during the long way you have a lot more time to think about death. The short way, it's it's yeah, it's uh, you're there or you're not. <laughs> you're right, <laughs> and the chances of you not being there yeah, are very very high. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a pretty it's a pretty dangerous place. Yeah, yeah, but uh, we did we, we very precautious and thank God you know you um you have some mountaineering uh, skills and training and and whatnot you were very uh, we were very fortunate uh, otherwise I probably would not have, have gone but uh, what a trip <laughs> it was what a trip it was yeah, you did great and on and honestly I mean you're you're inv- you're invited on any trip because you're one of your great skills out in the field is that you're calm, you're tenacious, you remain positive, you're helpful. You know, I, my, my main experience with rope work and doing stupid stuff has been underground, right, and with caving. And, you know, when you go on a caving trip, um, there are some people that you don't want to go with who are rushing and they're hot dogs and, you know, they're very, you know, have a lot of machismo about them. The right kind of people are people who have maybe a strong, high skill set, um, and they're very experienced, 
but nonetheless, those people are always taking care of everybody and making sure that everybody in the group is safe and everything is having a really good trip. And frankly, you're one of those kind of people. You really are. You're, you're, I can tell that you're very, you're a heck of a lot in better shape than I am, um, and you have a lot of experience. But you're right. You're right there to help anybody who needed help, no matter what. You know, so you're you're invited back. You can come on. Oh. You can come on many <laughs> of my trips that you want. <laughs> I, I I truly appreciate the kind words, and uh, oh, it'd be my honor to come back. Definitely, absolutely, Mark. Uh, any any outing with you, uh, it would be a great outing. Yeah. So oh, it thank was you. Fun, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, yeah, I'll let you know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I'll let you know about yeah, the next trip. Please do, uh, Mark. We got about we got about ten minutes left. Uh, I'm gonna have to cut it, this particular episode short. But I, I gotta ask you: uh, Has anybody, uh, whether on their deathbed or anybody that was involved with the uh, the Ape Canyon experience that was present, uh, ha- has anybody claimed that, uh, that it was a, they were lying or hoaxing? Or I mean, um, I, I obviously know the answer, but uh, that's a question that's been posed to me uh, via the chat room. Or, of course. Uh, sorry, in the PM. Thank you. Of course, uh, yeah. Uh, of course, the answer the answer is definitively no. No, there never was a deathbed confession, um, at least not one of any record. There is a rumor that I have come across um, in chat rooms or different stuff that there was a miner that confessed it was a hoax but nobody named that miner and again hey the original source i have never found any original source either either documented or in interviews with family members that that ever happened there's two there there there's a couple things going on one that impresses me is that all of these guys died and they stuck to their story for the rest of their lives and amazingly and when they would talk about the story, if they were interviewed years later, um, their story really didn't change that much at all. It was essentially the same story without a lot of elaboration or anything. So no, there was no there was no deathbed confession that it was a hoax amongst the miners at all. I've interviewed uh, Fred Beck's grandson, and 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 Beck's grandson lived with his grandfather for many years throughout his teen and young adult life. And I asked him point blank, what, what's your take on the story? And he, he calls his grandfather Fred, and he said he knew Fred for many years and knew what kind of person he was, and he knew that that story was 100% accurate. Wow. That's, uh, <laughs> so there <yeah>. you go. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, Mark, kudos to you once again on on uh, your diligence and, and, and looking into uh, this because – to look at the story face value, most would be like, eh, to, you know, uh, uh, there's no truth to this, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? There's always more to the story. I, you've done your, your homework. You've done your work. You, you've put your boots on the ground. And, uh, man, what uh, – there's so much uh, to go with the story other than just the face value stuff. There's a lot of corroborating things uh, uh, that, yeah. that, that you've brought – that you brought to light, that you brought to the table, and uh, this is just one of the things you're working on, and, and, and you've done a fantastic job. Why do you think, Mark? I mean, why 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 is this important work, in your opinion, to to be looking at the historical uh, these historical reports? Why is it important uh, in general, and why is it important yeah. to you? Yeah, the um, 
I, I know we're running short on time, so I'll try to keep this very brief because I'm obviously like this chatterbox and go on and on and on about this subject. But one <laughs> one thing that we need to keep in mind is that, say, in the Renaissance or, or, or even the birth of modern Sasquatch research with researchers like John Green and Renee DeHinden and, and Ivan Sanderson and these guys in 50s, 60s, Peter Byrne in, 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 the, in the early 70s, these guys were doing the work that we're doing currently today, you know, investigating contemporary sightings, you know, talking to witnesses, time out in the field, that kind of thing. In 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 the time when they were doing their, their research, Fred Beck was still around. Albert Osman was still around, right? And so they had that opportunity to interview the, interview those guys. But we have to remember that when these guys were interviewed by Green and, and, and Patterson and other people, they were treating the, the, the interview or the research into, as an example, the Ape Canyon story, they were treating it as if they were looking into a contemporary sighting. What did you see? What happened? Okay, thank you very much. Goodbye. And that was it. You know, they, didn't, they weren't looking into the story deeply, as if they were, say, a homicide detective or an investigative reporter, you know. They weren't going around to verify and cross-verify the information that was given. So in your, when you're doing a, an interview with a contemporary witness, you can't ask difficult questions because these, these witnesses are volunteering the information to you. You can't ask hard questions that may get your interview shut down. Okay, with historical research, you can ask hard questions like, have you ever been to prison? What church did you go to? Um, do you have a history of substance abuse? You know, where were you born? <laughs> you know, really, really <laughs> tough questions. And being able to ask those questions in, in, in unusual subjects like Sasquatch research, you can get those answers, and it provides a much larger detailed picture of what happened. Who were these people? What kind of lives did they have? What kind of lives did they have after their terrifying incident? And it provides us with a much larger picture that is relevant to today, right? There, uh, Cliff Berkman likes to talk about um, a, a rarity or maybe an impossibility of violent attacks people and that's one difference I have with Cliff is that I know that that doesn't happen today in a lot of modern sightings but I can tell you it did it, it sure did at Ape Canyon these guys were attacked a couple of other projects I'm working on people were attacked in another project possibly killed right so this historical research is relevant to what we're working on today and that's that's one reason why I do it yeah um uh, fascinating. It's really fascinating work, Mark, and I, I appreciate you coming on. I want to get to um, I want to make this a two-parter because uh, the Ape Canyon thing kind of it's amazing and it's kind of where you really made an impression on me. Uh, I obviously know that you've you got other projects going on. Uh, you've kind of uh, alluded to them right now here on the show. I want to have mm-hmm. you back on for um, a part two soon. Uh, yeah, there's yeah, I appreciate it absolutely, and we'll we'll have you back on here in, in just a few weeks, Mark. Uh, but I uh, 
I really appreciate coming on, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you down the road here, Mark. Me too. I miss you, Shane. Yeah, <laughs> you and I, I miss you, brother. Each other. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I miss you too, man. But uh, fantastic work. Um, I'm glad you're starting to finally get some of the notoriety, some of the, you know the kudos that you deserve uh, that people are asking you to right. come to you and speak about it. Because uh, to me, the his, like you mentioned before, um, the historical value uh, is very important to me, and, it, and it's something that. Uh, over time, I've really come to appreciate, and it's as a, a Sasquatch enthusiast and a researcher, or whatever. Uh, I know that it's very important uh, because there's much to be learned about uh, from this, uh, from these historical reports. So I'm glad you're the one uh, bringing these things to light and, and finding ah, the you. the tidbits of truth. Mark, appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, okay, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. It's one thing. One thing that you mentioned is no, I, I, you know, not aggressively. I don't go out looking for contemporary accounts because there's a lot of good people like yourself and other people who are doing that now, right? And it's not my yeah. forte. Historical research and finding old stuff in the ground. Yeah, I'm pretty good at that. And so that's that's the contribution that I want to make. Yeah. Well, and, and you have, and I know uh, there's much more down the road here, and we're going to talk about some of the stuff that you're working on here uh, the ne- uh, next time we have you on, Mark, um, and let's okay. make that soon. So I uh, appreciate okay, you joining us this evening, Mark. Thank you so much. Thanks, Shane. Okay, I'm going to talk to you soon. Talk to you later, Mark. Thank you. All right, bye. Well, folks, I, I hope you really enjoyed uh, this episode of Monster X Radio. Uh, Mark is just doing some amazing stuff out there, and he really is uh, – uh, an investigator at heart, and truly, uh, you know, when, when I think of an investigator or the Indy Jones, Indiana Jones character I, I claim to call Mark, <laughs> that it is Mark, Mark Marcel, fantastic guy. To get a chance, he's going to be speaking at the International Bigfoot Conference uh, beginning of September in Kennewick, Washington, uh, put on by Russell Accord. Uh, Gunnar Monson and I spoke there last year at the inaugural, the first uh, International Bigfoot Conference. Fantastic venue, but I recommend going. Uh, if nothing else, there's going to be fantastic speakers there, trust me, and, and whatnot. But Mark Marcel, uh, very cordial guy, humble, and truly knowledgeable on the subject of some of these historical reports like Ape Canyon and some of the other ones he's working on, that uh, he's brought things to light um, because of his diligence that no one else is uh, no one else is doing this, really, quite like Mark is. And... Uh, it's uh, it's amazing stuff. I recommend that. And and Mark will also be speaking at the uh, Big Sky Conference in Montana uh, down the road here. So uh, two events. I'm sure he'll be speaking at others because uh, uh, the word's getting out that this guy uh, is doing his stuff. And Mark, uh, like I said, is very humble. Uh, not a flute player. <laughs> no, he doesn't toot his own horn. He doesn't uh, reach out to conferences and ask to speak. People seek him out, and they're starting to seek him out, and he deserves it uh, because he's got a lot to share, and it's a shame if he can't share it. So uh, I hope you join me again next week for another uh, episode of Monstrex Radio. Gunnar Monson is taking a little uh, vacation, so I hope to have him back on the show here in a couple of weeks. But until then, look forward to uh, speaking with our future guests and having you guys join in on, on, on the show. So I appreciate your, uh, your feedback and appreciate you listening. Uh, Have a great evening, all, and we'll see you next week for another episode of Monster X Radio.
thank you for joining Monster X Radio.